The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. I was laughing with a friend this weekend who recently left 15 years of teaching high school English for an office job at a nonprofit, and she was sort of like, this is called hard work? And I think she has a point. After 15 years of every day holding the attention and respect of 20 teenagers, managing their hopes and dreams, their parents' hopes and dreams, teaching through the pandemic, all that stress adds up. And it can feel like boredom? Yes. One of the telltale signs of burnout is a sense of inefficacy and a sense of, I just can't. Have you ever sat at your computer and thought, I just can't? And sometimes when you're in a really stressful role that you've been doing for many years, even if you're masterful at it, you feel like maybe you could do it in your sleep. You feel disconnected, resentful, bored. You need to take a change. Today's episode is about burnout and renewal and a teacher finding love for her work again. Teachers have been through a lot in recent years, and it's no wonder there might be more mental health strain than ever before. The statistics are there, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which found that at least 300,000 teachers and administrators left the profession between February 2020 and May 2022. That exodus has likely slowed, and some of the problems, like all remote schooling, have been tamed. But the strain remains, and so I'm so glad today's guest reached out to me in this context. Crystal Frommert is a middle school math teacher and school administrator in Houston, Texas. She also wrote a book geared towards a teacher audience called When Calling Parents Isn't Your Calling, about building better relationships and partnerships with families and schools. We talk about burnout and other mental health challenges faced in this incredibly hard line of work. And we started, of course, by asking Crystal how she knew she wanted to be a teacher. I knew I was going to be a teacher back when I was eight years old. I set up my family's dining room as a classroom, and I made my little sisters and my dolls all sit in my classroom. I made posters of math activities, all kinds of things. And I used to play being a teacher as a kid. What's funny is we have four girls in our family, and they did not want any of us to go into a female-dominated career path. Mm. So I became a teacher as a result of that, and my sister became a nurse also. So we 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 all went into <laughs> mostly went into and one's a social worker. So um, <laughs> very much care oriented professions against my parents' wishes, but that's okay. Uh, they're supportive of us, and I actually started my undergrad as a business major because my parents told me basically that's what you're going to do, and. I quickly switched without their permission. I went into the uh, advisor's office at my university and said, I want to be a teacher and I want to switch to education. And I have been so happy with my career. It's hard. It's stressful. It's all of those things. It's not just 
you know, an eight to three job. I'm, I'm working weekends and nights, but I really do love what I do. I'm not sure if you want to get into this now, but I, you know, I did have a time in my career where I didn't love it. And that was very mm. confusing and bizarre to me. I'd love to hear about that. Okay. So I didn't know what the word burnout meant. I'd heard it, right? But I never really knew deeply what it meant. And about 2019, this is before the pandemic. So I can't even blame the pandemic for this. In 2019, it was very confusing for me because I stopped loving teaching. And mm. I always loved coming to work every day. I love my students. I love my school. I work at a great school. And all of a sudden, just that school year, I think it was the 1819 school year, I just didn't want to do this anymore. And I have very, very supportive administrators. And I had very open and frank conversations with them about, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm bored, which was very hard for me to admit out loud. Mm. I'm stressed out. I'm doing too much. And for the first time in many, many years, I sought out therapy, which I highly recommend to anyone because I needed help with navigating these confusing feelings of something that I always knew I wanted to do, something I'm really good at and used to love. And with the help of really supportive, wonderful therapist, it was a very hard decision, but I decided to leave my wonderful school. I went to another school, but it was a non-teaching role. And I thought if I could hmm. just stay teaching adjacent, right? If I could just work in school, I th thought that was a great solution. It was not a great solution, but I didn't really have any other options because my school had no non-teaching positions available for me. I kept an open relationship with them, which I'm very grateful I did because I came back. So after a couple of years of working in a school as a non-educator, I was helping teachers. I was supporting teachers and working in administration. I decided to come back to my school and had a renewed love for teaching. And I, I really do credit therapy for a lot of that. I came back with a new vision of what I was as a teacher. I came back with a little bit more calmness and relaxation towards what I was doing. I, I always felt this urgency of, you know, I've got to get this. I got to teach this. I got to do this perfectly. And, and I think that comes along with anxiety that I do have. But I think working with a therapist helped me put all of that, lay it all out, look at it all like, like a deck of cards, lay it all out. Let's look at this. Let's see where you are and let's reassess going back into the classroom, which was terrifying because I thought, what if I'm bored again? What if I burn out again? So I've been back a year, had a wonderful, wonderful year going into administration as well, but still teaching. So it was, it was a rocky journey. It was a very confusing journey. And I recommend that if anyone is feeling burnout, you can look up all the signs of burnout. And I had, I think I checked off every, every one of those signs. I'm always fascinated by burnout because I think one of the telltale signs of burnout is a sense of inefficacy and sort of like that sense of ennui, right? Or boredom right. or right. I just can't, <laughs> you know? Right. That's also can be signs of depression. Yes. Like what was your tell? How did you start to get those like, huh, I really need professional help? Boredom was definitely there and resentfulness comes across. Mm. That very much so I find that when I was, you know, talking with my therapist and researching online because, you know, I googled everything about burnout, right? Resentfulness comes up as one of the number one. I was angry. I was angry at how disorganized things were at school, which, you know, that's that's typical. And and I was I think I was overreacting to some of that disorganization that just comes along with running a place with 1800 children, right? Mm -hmm. And it was presenting itself as that. I was 
not happy at home. I was not happy at school. And I was not recognizing, whoa, I need to just step back for a moment and look at what I'm doing. What's my, I had been teaching for 20 years at that point mm. and very high achieving. I, you know, I, I went to graduate school. I am the type of teacher who's reading teacher books on the weekends. I'm listening to teacher <laughs> podcasts. I'm doing all the things. And it was just so much that it led mm-hmm. towards this anger, resentment, bitterness, and boredom that I was exhibiting. And it really kind of just washed over me and it was impossible to ignore. I think it's really valuable that you're talking about boredom. I think that boredom is something that we don't talk about. We're scared to talk about it. And when you're in a role that you've been doing for so many years, you're a master of it, right? Mm -hmm. And you feel like, you know, maybe you could do it in your sleep. I would imagine, and I've actually felt this myself at times, you know, you just think, is there more than this? Right. Yeah. Right. And when I did seek out, is there more than that? I mean, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in a role that I was supporting teachers rather than supporting 13 and 14 year olds, right? I thought that was the answer. (laughs) It was not quite the answer. And I don't regret leaving my school and returning because I gained a lot of experience in my career and also about myself professionally and personally. But I have to say I was a little bit embarrassed, right? I was embarrassed that I left and came back. And thanks to people who speak about this in media like yourself and and books that I'm reading and podcasters who are just becoming more open about, let's get rid of the stigma of mental health, right? Yeah. And because of that movement in the last, I would say, half a decade, I, I guess, I have become so much more comfortable talking about this at school. People say, oh, you left and you came back. And I am now very open. So yes, I was experiencing burnout. I sought therapy. I sought help. You know, here's what I went through. I don't consider that oversharing because no, I think that other people might hear that and think, oh, well, I might be going through that or I need to watch out for that. Or maybe, you know, someone I care about might be going through that. And we're doing this with our students too. We, as a school, we're so much more open about mental health and openly talking about depression, anxiety, the risk of suicide, all of these things that young people are dealing with way too much in the world. When I started teaching in 2000, year 2000, mm-hmm. we never, ever talked about this with our students. So it's just becoming so much more open. I feel better as a person, as a teacher. And I hope my kids do too, that they feel like, okay, this is a place where we can talk about these things. There's just not a stigma. I think that's amazing. You wrote to me that you're a lifelong anxious achiever mm-hmm. and you have a lot to say about how your anxiety shapes who you are as a teacher, good and bad, but that you realized that your anxiety inspired the book. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So... I was the type of teacher when I was first started as a 22 year old, I was frankly terrified to call parents. Keep in mind back then email was not very common. I did not have every parent's email address. And I, even if I did have an email address, I didn't know what to do with it. It was like phone calls and face to face <laughs> what we did in the late nineties, early two thousands. Right. So I was scared. I was young. I was inexperienced. I had no confidence in myself as a professional. I also think that undergrad programs and and teacher training could do a much better job in helping our brand new teachers have experience with talking with families Mm. because we love children. That's why we do what we do. And 
we are fine talking to people who are under four feet tall. But when you talk, when you bring in a 35 year old, a 45 year old, it's like, whoa. And you start to stumble on your words. And that was me. And in the book, I mentioned that, that I wrote on this topic for the book because this is the area, not that I'm an expert in, but it's the area that I have grown the most in. So I have a lot to say. I've always had my ears open and my eyes open to what other administrators and educators were doing when they're talking to families, because I always wanted to soak it in and learn how to get better at that, how to seem more confident, even if I wasn't. So yes, this book was born out of anxiety. Anxiety has, you know, right, you talk about this on your show as a good side and a bad side. You know, we, we have to just live with it like a, like a roommate, right? <laughs> and anxiety has helped me write this book. And I still have, have anxiety. When I have to call a, a mom or a dad about something that's not necessarily good news or something that's very sensitive, I never want to be the bearer of that kind of news. I'm a mom myself. I know how that feels. And on the flip side, there's anxiety that parents have when they see the caller ID as the school's name. I know that they are. Oh, <laughs> <sighs> yes. Like what happened? And so I'm starting to recognize that as a mom and as a teacher, that there's anxiety on both sides of that phone call or both sides of that table. And that's how the book is structured of, you know, let's just recognize this and how can we maintain our boundaries? That's extremely important as a professional, let's maintain our boundaries, but also let's reach out and build this partnership. What do boundaries look like in this negotiation? So there are some, you know, I, I see on like Twitter and Instagram, I see some teachers write some really horrific stories about yeah. 11 p.m. I got a text from a parent asking, you know, my child didn't finish their homework. Can you help them? You know, parents just popping in, demanding parent conferences. These are extremes, but they happen, right? And they cause a lot of stress for the teacher. And if a teacher doesn't have a lot of confidence and doesn't know his or her boundaries, then those parents will walk all over that teacher. So I'm very clear in the book about here's what you do not have to put up with if they're using aggressive language with you, threatening language, if they're just popping in unannounced, you can say, I am happy to meet with you at another time. Mm -hmm. And I really hope administrators read this message or hear this message and support their teachers in keeping that boundary as well. We can get burned out so easily if we keep answering emails in the wee hours of the night, right? <sighs> Which I used to do. I used to go back and forth with a parent eight times a day in an email. I'm not going to do that anymore. I I'm just not going to do it. I think it's really instructive. And I want to get actually a little bit into time management and really boundary management. I think that those of us in other professional roles actually probably have a lot to learn from teachers in terms of how to manage your time and mm. sort of, as you say, stack that work. Because teaching, you know, a huge complaint that I hear from people is, I spend all day in meetings, and then I have all my emails to answer. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and teaching is sort of an extreme version of that. Your job is not to answer emails. Your job is to be in the classroom and be with students and then work, work with the administration and curriculum and grading. But in the past, I would say, what, 10 years probably? This whole other level of constant external parent communication has been added because of email. 
And I would imagine that's almost created a whole other part-time role. I've heard this from doctors as well, right? Like, it's no longer enough that I see my patients all day in clinic. Now they email me all the time, and then I have to respond to their emails at night. Right, right. I love that you brought that up because I mean, thinking about a teacher who was teaching in the 70s, 80s, you know, 90s, they would make a couple of phone calls, have some meetings, but they wouldn't be inundated with, you know, I think I saw a number that some teachers receive 100 emails a day, yep. something like that, which is a whole other part-time job that they're handling. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And not getting paid for, right? No. I mean, that's that's part of our day. That's part of what we do, right? I worked with the principal, amazing man, who half-jokingly suggested that we do away with external email in school. Of course, that would never fly. But hmm. part of that joke was, I mean, yes, I mean, I, I'm all for it. If we went old school and we went back to the notes home and the face-to-face -face meetings and the phone calls, I think a lot of misunderstandings would be avoided. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that time that we're spending would be avoided. But there's also a convenience to email. I mean, I mm -hmm. work with 13, 14-year-olds. They, they do email. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that they email me. They ask me questions about due dates. They ask me questions about math homework. I'm happy to write them back. I have boundaries around that. I tell them, you know, after 7 p.m., I'm not going to respond. And, and they respect that. Hmm. So I think there's two sides that there's such a convenience that comes with electronic communication. There are even some educators who are texting. Maybe I'm not hip enough. I haven't gone, <laughs> I haven't gone that way. But th I think there are some who are like fine with giving out their cell phone number to families. We wow. can't really do that with kids, but with mm -hmm. parents, we can do that. And some are very okay with that. I'm, I'm not there yet. So what's your advice to teachers to sort of take a step back and really understand what their boundaries are and then how to set the limits around them? I would say this summer before school starts, just take some time to think about what is really feasible for your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Are you able to respond to emails at 11 p.m.? Is that something you have the bandwidth for? Are you already asleep at that time? Do you have a family to take care of? Do you have hobbies that you like to do? And set a time for yourself. Say, you know, after 6 p.m., I'm not going to check my email anymore. Whatever works for you. There's no set time, you know, for anybody. It depends on, on how your personal life runs, but set a time for yourself. Maybe don't even have your email app on your phone. That's kind of an mm -hmm. extreme thing, but that might work for some teachers. Just setting that boundary for yourself of maybe the weekends. I, I work at a school, we have a very large French population and a lot of French teachers at our school who, who come from France. And I find, I don't mean to generalize, but I find that my French colleagues have a much, much better time with setting boundaries. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> surprised. <laughs> Again, some, you know, some are probably like me and, and very anxious and check their email all the time. But one of my best friends is French and she's like, absolutely not. I will not check my email on the weekends <laughs> and does not feel the least bit bad about that. Yeah. And I'm inspired by her. And I'm like, wow, I wish I could be a little bit more like that because you don't need to really check your email on a Saturday. And, and also beyond just email, it's the intrusions of time while you're at school and you might have a, a conference period. If a parent pops into the school, some are very involved and they mean well and they just want to come to chat with you. Just having that confidence of saying very kindly, but very frankly saying, right now, I can't talk to you about your son. I would love to talk to you. How about next Thursday morning? Would that work for you? Mm. 
because you're showing the the parent who's popped in. This could be a parent who works at the school, right, or is a substitute at the school or volunteer, uh, or just walks on in. But saying it very kindly is okay. It's it's okay to say right now I'm really busy or I'm not prepared to have this conversation. And that gives a gift to both of you because you now have time to prepare and that parent now realizes, oh, there's a professional boundary there. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. What's your advice for managing? I mean, this is a universal feeling. And in a way, when you're in a parent meeting, and let me just tell you that I have vast experience in this arena. When you're in a parent meeting and you're trying to problem solve together, Ideally, you're trying to problem solve together. Sometimes it gets oppositional. Sometimes the parent is coming from a very different place than the school or the teacher or the special educator. What's your advice for a teacher to manage their anxiety in those difficult conversations? Gosh, as you were asking that question, I I really could feel like my skin start to tickle. Oh, no. (laughs) That is exactly, that's the telltale sign for me. When my skin starts to tingle, I'm like, oh, 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 we're in a confrontational situation now. And I I could feel that. It's my anxiety presenting itself. And I feel that even when we have wonderful, well-intentioned parents who don't agree with something I say, which is mm-hmm. completely fine. We don't have to all agree on everything. And I think that as teachers, sometimes we come from a place where we want to please everybody all the time. And we can't. We just cannot do that. It's impossible. Going into a meeting knowing that I cannot make everybody happy all the time. I can come to this meeting with the research that I have, with the resources that I have, evidence that I have of the child's progress. I can present that in an objective way. And then the other part of that is just, sorry to be so curt here, but just shut up and listen. <laughs> I mean, as teachers, we talk so much like I'm doing right now, but in a parent conference or a parent phone call, We need to be quiet and listen because when we stop and listen to what the parent is saying, we can achieve so much more. They might be saying, I want this and I want you to do this, but really behind all of that, there's something deeper that they need for their child or they need from the school that if we stop and truly listen to what they want, whether we agree with that or not, doesn't matter. If we stop and listen, we could really make headway with coming together on an agreement for that child. I think from my experience as the parent in many difficult conversations with the school, you know, it's tapping into my most fundamental anxieties around Mm -hmm. my child, around fears of 
loss or, you know, really, really fundamental fears that I have both with my own baggage, right, with who I am, and then for my kid and about my kid. And so I think that acknowledging in a way the depth of feeling, and this is maybe in more extreme situations, not like I can't read your kid's handwriting when they hand in their math homework or they're not uploading it to the server or whatever. But, you know, there are big feelings sometimes in these kinds. And I would imagine teachers have big feelings too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I didn't realize that until I became a parent. That when a parent comes to sit down with me or gets a phone call from me, we're not talking about, you know, their insurance plan. We're not talking about their lawn service. We're not talking about anything that, yes, we would talk about those things, but we are talking about the most important thing in their lives, their children. There is nothing more important to a parent than their child's well-being, right? And their child. And I, I mentioned that in the book too, that keeping that knowledge in the forefront as we're teachers, whether we're parents or not, doesn't matter. If we are educators and we're talking to a parent, we have to remember we are talking about the most important thing in their life. And there's a lot of sensitivity that comes around that. We don't want to sugarcoat everything. We want to be, we want to be kindly honest with them, but it's coming to it with, I care about your child. I truly do care about your child. And we're going to work together to get through this and to help your child improve in this area. That's very key because they are the most important thing in their lives. Yeah. I've also noticed that, and this is a great tool for any negotiation, that good teachers and good educators and administrators open with positives always. Like Mm -hmm. I may come into the meeting expecting the absolute worst and they're like, oh, so great. And then last week they did this and it's fabulous. And you're like, you're just a little bit calmer, like sets off the edge a little bit. (laughs) Yes, yes. I also recommend that teachers send an email or make a phone call depending on, on how many students they have in their rosters, but the first week of school Oh, and reach out to every family, not a copy pasted message, but an actual true message, short and sweet of, you know what? I've noticed that Mora has a great sense of humor. You can notice that about Mora within a couple of days, right? It's, it's very easy yeah. to see that or yeah. she's so artistic. I love how she brings art into what we're doing. Something like that, just notice a little tidbit about their child, send that message. I'm so happy to work with her this year. I'm looking forward to seeing you at parent night. And that starts you off on a great stepping stone on this path towards partnership because mm-hmm. the parent feels like, oh, okay, well, this, this teacher sees my child, right? And it really mm-hmm. doesn't take that much time to just share what you've seen about their child. They're funny. They love art. They like helping others. You know, you could even be academic, just something that's positive and lovely about that child because they all have something. Wow. Okay. And then how about after the meeting, post-meeting yeah. follow-up, keeping everyone feeling, because, you know, people get anxious when there's no follow-up or they don't know what's going on. What's your recommendation for communication after the meeting or after some kind of solution or resolution is implemented? The most pushback I get about the message of my book about making phone calls and face-to-face meetings is that there are some educators who feel like, and, and they're justified in this feeling, that they don't want to have communication with a family unless it's written 
because of mm. litigious, you know, mm-hmm. litigious follow up yeah. or something like that, or he said, she said. So my answer to that is one, I think the voice is extremely important when you're talking about something as sensitive as a child's learning or a child's well being. The face to face is even better. But to answer to that pushback and, and to answer your question too, always follow up with something written. So mm-hmm. as you're on that phone call, this, this is what I do as a time-saving trick. <laughs> While I'm on that phone call, I will type up an email, a draft of an email of this is what we talked about. This is what we're going to do going forward. Very short, bulleted list. Thank you so much for your time today. And then I send that shortly after we hang up the call so that there is a documentation. I could copy that to my administration if I need to. The parents are aware of what we talked about, a summary of what we talked about. And I think that's going to cover all the basis of, thank you for talking with me. Here's how we're going to go forward. Another teacher hack, if you will, <laughs> that I have <laughs> is I ask families to write me because I have a lot more kids than they, they do, right? I have mm-hmm. 80 children. They might have four, right? <laughs> or less. <laughs> so I ask them, please write me once a week, you know, for a few weeks to check in on how Sarah is doing in my class. I'm happy to respond to you. It's a nice reminder to me to give you a weekly summary. And that puts it on the parents that they're in the driver's seat at that point, right? The parents can decide I'm, you know, once a week is a nice boundary. If I do it every day, that's a little too much. But if I ask them to do that once a week, it's very helpful in me getting that reminder. Yeah. Right. And so that's, that's another follow-up that you can do to make sure that this conversation carries on. I love that. As we close out here, I want to talk about what the rest of us can learn from you about time management during the day and achieving that balance of admin work and in the classroom or, you know, literally doing your job work. (laughs) Yes. You've written about this, work-life balance as a teacher, time management. Any advice to give the rest of us? Yeah. Well, thank you for reading that article. And yes, I was inspired by a head of school out of Cleveland, Ohio named Ann Klotz. So I have to give her credit for the stacking idea. But she gave an interview about the idea of stacking rather than balance, because there really is no such thing as work-life balance. No. So if you imagine a stack of papers on your desk, your attention goes to the paper on the very top. And of course, you can reshuffle those papers as needed, but it's not papers strewn out on the desk where your your attention is scattered. You're not sure where to look. But if you think about stacking, so right now I have mm-hmm. to teach this algebra class. That's what I have to do right now. The email that's pending from a parent or the administrator who wants to meet with me, all of those things, yes, have to be done. But right now my priority is my algebra class. And then when the bell rings, that paper goes you know, to the bottom and then the next paper comes to the top or stacking right now. I need to go to the bathroom. (laughs) I I know that sounds ridiculous, but as a teacher, I absolutely have to tell myself, go to the bathroom, drink some water (laughs) because we are, we eat, go to lunch. We get, what did they say? I think I read a statistic that there's like 1500 decisions that teachers make in a day. Wow. More more than a surgeon is making in a day of children coming to us. And what do we do with this? Where do I put my scissors? And they're little, right? They're not life-saving like a surgeon, but they're little and there's 1500 of them. So one of those stacks, one of the papers on the stack has to be, I'm going to the bathroom. And then the next one will be, (laughs) now I'm going to call that parent. And having a multitasking myth is, it's just not going to help you. It's, it's not going to work. 
We're going to fall flat. There's no balance. So I really love Ann Klotz's idea of stacking. I love that. On my last question, I, I would just love to zoom out for a minute and ask you, when you look at mental health right now for your students, your colleagues, parents, what could the administration do better to protect teacher mental health? Let's focus on teacher mental health. What could the administration, not yours, but in general, what could right. school administration do better? My school is phenomenal at that. And I'll give you one example of, of what we do. We have many students who are Muslim at our school. During Ramadan, we have a space in our school where teachers and students can go for just quiet time away from the cafeteria because you know they're not going to be eating during that time. That's one small example of just providing a room, mm. a room where you can go and meditate or do whatever you need to do away from an eating space. It's recognizing the needs of all types of people, all types of teachers. I don't think the same rules apply to everybody. That doesn't work in life. If you have a teacher who is a single parent who has a couple of children, you know, might need to come in a little bit late because of childcare situation, give that person that, that leeway, that grace and forget the whole thing. Well, that's not fair. You know, that I can't do that for everybody. That's ridiculous because that teacher is giving so much of their energy and their expertise to your school that I think you could give that person a little bit of grace with their lifestyle. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.